You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Last week, I had the discussion with Daniel Want from Prerequisite Capital Management in Australia. It was a long conversation which was split into two parts. This is part two. If you wish to and have not yet listened to part one, if you just go to the blog capitalistexploits.at, search for Daniel Want and you will find part one. This is part two where Daniel and I are diving into collateral in the system, how it's created and in specific the derivative market amongst other things. Welcome and I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're enabling poor stewards of capital and um, penalizing more productive or better stewards of, of capital and the very lifeblood of the system, which depends on, you know, having some form of integrity to market mechanisms to allocate capital and resources and, you know, this whole supply and demand story you know, to productive and sustainable sort of allocations is fundamentally impaired. So, how so do you... when we look at it all, it's, it's that actual capacity to, for the overall system to produce and create productive assets is, um, is getting hammered. So first the production of those quality uh, assets being collateral um, is being hampered. <clears throat> Secondly, those that do exist in terms of existing collateral are inherently more more valuable uh, more well they're currently more valuable but they're also potentially any additional level of credit that's attached to them makes them inherently more unstable mm-hmm. um and that kind of brings me to one of the other things that i wanted to talk to you about been trying to understand this a little bit and years back i worked um in one of the large investment banks who will remain unnamed for the time being but uh, we worked on a lot of derivative transactions and that was back in oh, shit, late 90s, um, early 2000s. And I suspect that that entire business now is, is um, vastly different. In fact, I know just from looking at the numbers it is. How do, how do derivatives fit into this picture? Because essentially, most of the time, um, derivatives are a hedging mechanism and they u- they're utilizing base collateral and thus margin um, for hedging. And so one would expect notional derivatives to have declined commensurately with the declining collateral, right? So we've just been talking about this declining collateral. And yeah, but remember, though, a derivative structure can be, you know, uh, collateralized by either a high-quality liquid asset usually or cash. Right. Right. So, yeah, and high-quality assets or, or collateral are hard to manufacture cash, as we're seeing, is actually quite easy to manufacture. But that comes at huge cost. It's just like adding water to milk and thinking that, you know, you still have a, a bottle of milk there that's going to have all the productive and nu- nutrition type. And right, because... A bottle of milk normally would, but if you're swapping out the milk for water or watering it down, like with cash, yeah, all sorts of issues that, that kick in. And that's what... Well, cash is only actually um, a decent collateral provided it has, retains its purchasing power. 
yeah. which you know in the strangely in the current environment that we've had post say post gfc is that we've had this deflationary environment and so cash has actually become more valuable not less while at the same time the leverage in the system has grown so you know a lot of people speak about and a lot of very very smart guys that i've spoken to and you probably speak to some of the same guys are looking at credit in the system and looking at credit relative to gdp and you know all of these numbers are pretty frightening <clears throat> while at the same time if we look at derivatives relative to gdp they're arguably a, a bigger issue um, and all those derivatives are collateralized where you are the same assets that the credit is attached to and so it makes you wonder where if you had a decline in those in those assets um, that could be potentially quite um, problematic and certainly if I was a central banker looking at this daisy chain of derivatives as well as the credit that is attached to those assets the last the very very last thing that I would want to take want to see take place is a decline in that collateral in the in the value of that collateral because the credit that's attached to it um, then is affected and certainly the derivatives that are attached to both that asset as well as often the credit um, yeah, I mean the big thing there is um, yeah you're right like but you look at say the banks that have that underpin or that, that are attached to a lot of these notional derivative exposures now in normal times it's and probably rightly so um, those derivative exposures they net out and then that netting then appears on the balance sheet right it's, it's yep. sort of allowed for within that and so there's a net equity position in normal times that is is probably reasonably reflective of um what the situation is and and that's where you know people looking at the net you know or that whole zero sum type logic around derivative exposures is you know in some ways fair enough the, the problem is, is that all of those derivative, the notional exposures really, you know, the, the hidden issue is that their contingent liabilities to those balance sheets uh, potentially, potentially will approach the notional value of those um, derivative exposures to the degree that the environment shifts into more disorderly um, dynamics. Uh, so where basically counterparty risk is escalating, all of a sudden you thought your derivative exposures on your balance sheet were manageable and they net out to a pretty manageable sort of number. But the contingent liabilities that are inherent on that balance sheet can potentially go well beyond the netting and, and actually starting to kick into some sort of percentage of the overall notional value, you know? And so, you know, the three biggest sources of risk, if you were to oversimplify things for the typical, you know, major bank out there in the world, you've got the asset quality risk, right? You've got funding risks, but you've also got these contingent liabilities um, that can pop up out of nowhere um, that you're not accounting for. The problem with those three sources of risk, funding risk, asset quality risk, and contingent liabilities, which can be, you know, related to counterparty risk, which escalate in disorderly times, right? They're all interrelated. They self-reinforce yeah. this very boom-bust sort of in, in their dynamics. Yeah, look, it's, it's LTCM, right? 
And and that's where, you know, again, you're looking at what are, what are some of these structural shifts that could potentially endanger that system. Um, yeah, it kind of brings us all the way back to LIBOR, which I've been spending a lot of time trying to understand. Um, and coupled with that, one of the other aspects, lastly, which I just wanted to get your views on, because you've spent a lot of time looking at these um, these systems, how much time do you spend on kind of social systems or social factors that can that can uh, contribute this? And, and what I mean by that, for example, is I look at there's a lot of this quantitative kind of data that we can look at and we can analyze and we can try and again sort of identify. Oh, look, there's a bulb. We don't know if it's spring, but if we see enough bulbs, it's probably spring. Hmm. But Often things that flip a particular uh, market, if I go back and I've looked at tons and tons of history, are factors that can't necessarily at the time be judged to be quantitative. They're more sort of qualitative. And in that respect, I look at things like um, Zeitgeist change that often are a result of the quantitative. So, you know, we were just been discussing the, the, the lower quality of income, right? And so for the last probably 20 odd years in most of the developed world, the middle class has not experienced increasing wealth. And so that then changes the social mood and social mood then affects um, how people allocate capital, it affects how they vote. Um, and so some of these shifts in social mood and social trends and behavioral economics, if you will, can then have a feedback into the quantitative, into the all the things that we've just discussed, which then can trigger off a, um, a feedback mechanism that, that helps reinforce a shift in, in a market. And so if we look around the world today, certainly there's a rising popularism, there's nationalism, there's... Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Aspects. I mean, by very definition of the system we're studying, it's, it's all to do with people, right? Their behaviours, their decisions, their actions, their perception. Like the very, my dad's an engineer and often I'll sit back and, you know, kick myself and go, man, why didn't I go down that path where one plus one always equals two? Like he can build a bridge because of that, right? Yeah. Man, in, in my world, in our world, in the systems that we have to analyse with thinking participants that perceive and act and sometimes, you know, and there's all sorts of things that influence that and trust is at the very key of a lot of it. One plus one, sometimes it equals two, sometimes it equals five. In other conditions, it'll self-reinforce and equal minus three, right? Yeah, and yeah. they're one of the biggest drivers. Now, we're studying a system. Economics is all about transactions and incentives and behaviors and, and all this sort of stuff. The common denominator in all of those, in every transaction, is the human person and the human people behind, ultimately, that wear you know, the risk and reward to these transactions. And so to think you can study the system and understand the system without first understanding the people that comprise it is ridiculous, you know? And even in talking about where the assets come from, how do you create them? You know, there's a pretty central precept in that without trust, nothing grows, right? Now, whether that's in your marriage or in, a, in your personal life or in business context or even within nations and legal system, property rights and interactions between nations, Without trust, nothing grows. You know, financial assets are really just a capitalization of trust 
systems in many ways. So distrust and, and fear-driven environments um, are incredibly corrosive to asset formation and you know, capital flows and all of this sort of stuff because trust is disappearing. Now, and another way of looking at all of this, you know, I, I found it fascinating a few years back, I was listening to a, a guy by the name of Dr. Ravi Zacharias, and he made the point, you know, when referring to the, um, the financial crisis in, in 2008, for example, you know, we have a society all around the world, but, you know, even especially within the US where, you know, our kids, they go to uni, they go to college, they're, they're trained up in all these ways of understanding the world and building bridges and railroads and businesses and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. Undergirding that, we're also teaching them very deliberately and, and strongly and proactively that all morality is a relative concept, right? There's nothing really wrong with anything these days. It's all relative to some agenda or feeling or pick one. There's no absolute standard. We teach this in all the universities. Now, these kids, you know, they learn how to do all this stuff. They go out into the corporate world. They're running businesses, they're running banks, and then they start to operate and act out of this relative moral framework that we've given them. And then we throw them in jail, right? Or we have all sorts of fraud issues or, you know, basically breach of trust. Fiduciary mm -hmm. duty, especially in the investment and financial services industry, is almost like a quaint concept these days. If you were to just judge by the actions and, and the way, you know, Absolutely. people in these industries, when push comes to shove, tend to act in, in light of incentives, you know, and so everything is interrelated and, and absolutely, you know, you cannot talk about or analyze a system, especially the, the social economic sort of systems that we analyze, you know, when we're trying to get ahead around investment markets and asset classes and things without having a very core understanding of, of people and what drives their behaviors and what drives everything, trust and, and the whole works. Because that collective set of, you know, loosely unified beliefs about, you know, what is, you know, a moral framework in a society is what a legal system and then, then on top of that, a political system will sit upon. Our whole economic and financial system then sits upon that, you know, um, you know, the judicial, legal, political sort of systems, you know, yet again. And so you know, to try and understand the financial sort of economic, you know, aspects of systems in the world without understanding the people and, and our collective beliefs and what forms them, especially when it pertains to things like morality and things which underpin legal systems and ultimately you know, the integrity of property rights, the integrity of market mechanisms, right? Trying to balance out all these rights and obligations and, you know, uh, trying to match authority and responsibility and, you know, the origination of risks and the ownership of risks, especially through the banking system. You know, that derivative presentation I put together for Real Vision, when you look at the dr drastic expansion of notional derivatives you know from like 1998 where they were like two times world gdp or something 
to the peak in whatever it was, 2011, 2012, where it's topping out at like 11 to 12 times GDP. Now that's an absolute earnings bonanza, right? For the financial yeah. system and for those firms that were at the heart of that, you know, but you know, what the hell is a derivative? It funds nothing. It doesn't really do anything. There's some sort of a risk shuffling aspect in all that, but ultimately all we're doing is creating liabilities. Now there's a place for it, but past a certain point, you know, it actually is not a societal benefit. In fact, it's a systemic threat. And, you know, where was the fiduciary, even the concept or sense of fiduciary duty? You know, we created a system and within our system, we kind of created circumstances where that sort of a, um, basically a, an unrestrained party could occur. I guess it comes back to what you mentioned earlier on, Daniel, with respect to what underpins a society that can create collateral. And one of the things that you mentioned, which I think is really important, is um, is a legal system that is conducive to that and which can be trusted. Um, and if you look at that side of things today, there's significant problems in that. Um, I've just been doing some studies on countries which have descended into civil strife for whatever reason and how that actually manifests itself in a society underpinning all of it tends to be a weak state that increasingly is distrusted by the citizenry and then the citizenry ask essentially ask for or condone actions which you would not in a civilized society condone. So for example, vigilante killings, hmm. right? Um, a society will actually ask for that and expect it and be happy when that's taking place because they see these other existential threats to be greater. It's again, you mentioned relativity. It's kind of that situation where, well, it's probably bad, but should it's a whole lot less bad than X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, and that's a very dangerous pathway to take. It is. It is. It only expands that, that, that sort of disorder. Now, one of the, the fastest ways, if you, if you look around the world and go, okay, where am I going to put my money for 10 years? You can literally, you know, and what you were referring to there, I'd, I'd suggest to you, you can sum up an analysis paradigm where you look at the society and the government and you just ask yourself this question, does that government serve a higher law, right, that's enshrined in its legal system or constitutional underpinnings. Mm -hmm. you know, to the point, you know, if you were to use an analogy of a person, you know, does that person, will he or she keep his or her word even to their own detriment because mm -hmm. there's an honesty and an integrity about them, right? They serve a higher principle, a higher law concept or ideal. Um, to the degree that the society and you know, as reflected in the government and the leadership of that society will serve a higher set of principles, even to their own detriment at times. That's the degree to which life will tend to get better in that environment. Economic activity will improve, living standards will rise, they will be able to produce and, and create productive assets. Blah, blah, blah. There's a, a virtuous circle that unfolds there. However, the flip side, the counter example is to the degree that the legal system or the law serves the government and the government's agenda, you know, which in an extreme sense in a tyrannical type system, the law is going to change according to, you know, that dictator's 
agenda or you know he wakes up one morning and feels differently about something and the law will change right mm-hmm. you know you, you've either you've only got three forms of law in the world you've got a higher law construct you've got a subjective law construct and you've got a no law situation which is chaos or anarchy now to the degree that the government and the leadership sincerely serve a higher law life will get better to the degree that the law actually serves the government then you're going to have all sorts of can of worms and sustainability issues and and over a multi-decade period life isn't actually going to get better because any prosperity that comes will be by definition unsustainable or have artificial characteristics to it and there's going to be some big cold showers coming along you know that's interesting you mention that because there was a study done by some social scientists that have been researching and they studied Colombia and the um, lynchings and things like that that took place in that society and they've studied um, a number of West African states that have um, descended into fairly uh, lawless societies they've gone through history and studied a lot of these and they've pinpointed a number of factors that actually underpin or are the pillars to those events taking place and if you were if I was to bring it down to kind of one or two it's exactly what you just mentioned which is to say um, a distrust or, or a situation whereby the legal structure is no longer seen to be one that is a legal structure for you the citizen but against you the citizen in favor of whoever the ruling party may be and in that environment you no longer feel aligned with the government of the day that massive distrust means that you have a shortened time horizon with respect to how you would allocate your time and capital so for example i would not presumably set up a business which has a lot of uh, capital costs in that environment because I don't know what it's going to look like in say 10. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, um, it's easier to see truth sometimes if you take things to an extreme. And so if we took two extreme polar opposite environments, right in a state or a country where there is sincere regard for a higher law construct, which values fundamentally life, right. Which then underpins a property rights structure as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, blah 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 they tend to get the balance between rights and obligations pretty good in a society but let's take that as an extreme you're you're prepared to basically lock up um and leave some money in that country for 20 years disappear and you're pretty confident that that money will still be there because it's protected by a higher law system which everyone respects and upholds even potentially sacrificially right Mm -hmm. and in that situation contracts are valid you know contracts have integrity have confidence you know even the ability to form savings and then investment and inner you know economic activity and especially the more complex type which is required to get that diversity of of things to really create a, a virtuous cycle of you know increased living standards and economic activity that's sustainable and productive assets blah 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 capital formation that's one extreme. The other extreme is in the society that doesn't have that, where the rule of law is broken down. You can only defend what, well, you only own what you can defend, probably physically. Um, yeah. 
right? There's no trust, zero trust. There's zero foundation for trust. And so the, the forming of capital or sustaining of capital is like a non-event, you know, and you look at a lot of the third world nations in Africa and that's exactly what it is. In that situation, your best investment is not trying to, you know, save money and, you know, invest in, the, in a capital structure of an economy or whatever. Your best investment is probably to have, you know, 20 kids because that enables you to, you know, defend more stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, there's no, no I, 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 I grew up in Africa, so I, I understand very well that as, a, as an example, and I've lived in parts of Asia and all over the world, and I, you can see it on the ground in many places as to why business functions and how it functions and what the mindsets are and so on and so forth. And, you know, I think if there's any conclusions to be drawn from this, that it's that the quantitative, if you will, that exists in the world today, the quantitative data and analysis that we were looking at is increasing the probability that those breakdowns in societal structure and trust, they are actually taking place, which is very deeply concerning well, you see it also in the, it's concurrent to the, um, you know, basically the reversal of these multi-decade capital flows we've seen build up and escalating geopolitical, you know, uh, instability, uh, which is basically just distrust is escalating. We don't have a cooperative world as much as we sort of used to, but we're increasingly, we have a competitive world, which makes sense when you've, you know, had a party on the back of a lot of debt and you've got yeah. a lot of liability structures left right and center and everyone's looking around wondering who's gonna who's gonna pay for it um who's gonna clean up the the, the um yeah where, where is the bill going to be assigned you know there's no free lunch so what are your conclusions if you will that come out of this in terms of how you're assisting clients at prerequisite funny thing about complex systems and complexity is the way to actually then handle them or navigate them if you're within one um, because they are inherently complex and tricky and there's all sorts of crazy adaptations that they can take is you want to move back towards a very simple strategy and, and way of dealing with it all that is is actually highly resilient right that you know has a capacity to adapt you know, to the conditions that unfold, whatever they are. You know, I think it was on that Real Vision thing earlier in the year that I was talking about, um, you know, natural systems, a natural system in, in the world or in an in a ecosystem tends to have two key traits, uh, resiliency and, and efficiency, efficiency towards achieving a particular end or whatever the purpose of that system is, right, um, in nature of like a tree or something. Now, the most successful natural systems have a balance between those two characteristics of about two-thirds resiliency characteristics or capabilities and one-third efficiency. Now, that is, you know, if you're too efficient and not resilient enough, like you're inflexible, um, you know, too much debt, overheads, operationally overheads, you know, contractual inflexibilities, you know, deficit of skill set or capability, whatever it is that makes you inflexible, you know, when the conditions inevitably change and the regimes shift, well, you're going to get smoked and you'll have a poor ability to adapt. 
you know, but if you're two thirds resilient, then you'll, you'll basically adapt, you'll bend in the wind. You know, it's that reed that bends as opposed to the, the tree that breaks. Right. But at the same, you know, so it's all about resiliency type capabilities, irrespective of what comes, you know, and structuring asset class exposures and portfolios with resiliency in mind. Yet on the flip side, we still want to outperform uh, or get a reason, a, an attractive return, right? So we still need to try and move towards that efficiency aspect of things. Um, you know, and you, you've probably recognized from your experience that largely risk is a function of awareness, right? The more aware you are in the world, the, the more likely you're going to be able to identify and then manage risks appropriately. Um, however, returns, especially the outsized or better uh, better than average returns are going to come from your capacity to generate insight, you know, or common Absolutely. sense. And overall, your ability to survive is going to be around, you know, a resiliency type. And so first and foremost, when we structure portfolios, we're, we're looking at resiliency. Come hell or high water, we want to survive. And that means maintaining purchasing power, um, whether it's inflation, deflation, boom, bust, you know, currency going through the roof or currency collapsing domestically. Um, we want to somehow create a structure that's going to be, you know, reasonably resilient to the degree that you can. Yeah. Um, and because of that, we have a starting point that will see us with exposures, you know, across equities, you know, uh, government, longer duration bonds, precious metals, um, cash, and, you know, uh, and, a conservative but intelligent approach to the, the foreign currency question. And that gives us basically a starting point with a zero correlation to any particular asset class, right? Especially equities and a, a volatility profile that is, you know, typically 50% less than, than a standard equity market. Um, it also gives us a starting point from which to adapt. Right, and then in all, and and also to maintain purchasing power come hell or high water. You know, the only thing we can't really protect against, uh, or at least not at this stage in our um, evolution as a firm, is we're still limited to using exchange traded assets, and we try to stay. Well, we only use you know liquid assets. Uh, we don't yet have a capability to um, start working in an illiquid sort of asset world, but right. I think the time is probably there yet anyway in the world to worry about that just yet. Uh, that will come. And so we're all about preserving purchasing power through whatever scenario. And then in order to achieve better than average returns, we do two things. One, we skew, we're, we're trying to align ourselves with the bigger picture market trends you know, so multi-year, not so much multi-month trends. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we can get 70% of a major trend in an asset class, then we'll be more than happy. You know, we're not trying to pick tops and bottoms, but we'll tend to screw, skew the weightings of those different asset classes according to what's trending and in what direction, right? And that doesn't involve me being a rocket scientist or trying to predict what's happening or even understanding what's happening. I'm just observing and adjusting accordingly. And so we have a line in the sand under every market at which we're going to start to decrease our weighting to that. We're only using big, boring assets. We have no derivatives, no leverage, no nothing. We're only long, long only. Um, and so we have a capacity to adapt 
you know, and by skewing those asset classes, you know, to over or underweight or neutral sort of exposures um, helps us stay in line with the broader tides and, you know, changing dynamics in the world. Um, and so a client, you know, we tend to try and outsource everything we can. And so all we really do is the investment advice and, and management research side of things. And so a client will open their own account with the platform here in Australia. Um, they'll own their assets. They'll have full transparency. You know, we just put an overlay on it to, to actually manage towards a performance outcome. And so they can look at the markets. If the, the asset class or the market tends to be trending up, then they'll tend to have an overweight towards that asset class. If it's down, then they'll tend to be underweight towards that asset class. And so that gives us an adaptable sort of resilient footing, both in maintaining purchasing power. You know, we'll never have a 0% allocation to any particular asset class because we want to protect uh, any against any sudden moves and all of this sort of thing. Then maybe the last remaining 20, 30, percent of returns are driven by you know what I jokingly describe as the rocket science side of things so you know I have models and frameworks and and uh, theories around lots of stuff in terms of how to price asset markets and how to judge you know whether we're looking at a, a continuance of a trend uh, versus a, a, a you know a counter trend move or even a change of trend move and that's all about, you know, understanding asset and uh, understanding capital flows, understanding liquidity, understanding asset pricing within the context of the un unfolding underlying conditions. You know, so all of this stuff we've been talking about all feeds into this in terms of gauging what is in the price of an asset market and testing the reasonableness of those assumptions uh, in that pricing and then so forming views around what assets you do and don't want to be in, what currencies you want to be in and not, um, and vice versa. And so I spend 90% of my time on the rocket science stuff, trying to understand the systems and, and how they're evolving and how the markets are unfolding. Um, Yet it probably only contributes 30% or between 20 to 40%, depending on the mandate of the portfolio uh, to their actual returns. Um, the rest is driven by a diversification sort of resiliency strategy with a um, trend following overlay. Well, what you've just described is Pareto's law. Yeah, right. pretty much. Um, <laughs> and it also basically, you know, when you put it all together, it gives us that right balance uh, between resiliency and efficiency that I'm looking for, you know, where our portfolios are loosely about two thirds resiliency characteristics and, uh, you know, capacity to adapt and all this sort of thing. And, you know, about one third roughly efficiency characteristics where I'm seeking greater insight to generate better returns, you know, and also to adapt effectively with the conditions as they're unfolding uh, in a reasonably timely manner. You know, and having said all that, our portfolios are pretty low touch, They're like 15, 20% portfolio turnover per annum. Um, well, since we started, and we're doing equity light returns with half the volatility and no correlation. Um, and so it seems just, it seems like you've got the right um, bias in terms of um, providing a client with what it is that they need while being paid 
um, in, a, in a fashion which actually is biased towards them because as you quite well know, <clears throat> some of the payment structures for managing accounts and things of that nature is one on um, basically AUM and then also on trades placed. And especially right. on trades placed, it's, it's, it, that's one of the biggest destruction elements to anyone's portfolio is, is essentially churning and turning portfolios over more and more, which, well, it doesn't pay the investor. And that's, that's a structure that you see quite frequently. That structure that you have makes a whole lot of sense because you're essentially, you're, you, just by actually not turning accounts over, you're probably getting another 100 basis points for your clients every year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we started, I started our firm basically out of, whole, out of a whole world of frustration looking at family and friends getting sold up the creek by the industry here and being put on a roller coaster ride in the way portfolios were really being constructed um, for them. And, and so I thought if I can create a solution that's good enough for my own family and friends, then other people probably would like it too. And absolutely, we're not going to get paid on transactions. That's a pretty ridiculous incentive. Mismatch. But that exists in the industry. Oh, there's a lot of stuff. Like, you know. Our industry, our financial services industry, is sort of fundamentally breaches of fiduciary duty everywhere. You know, and even with what we do, you know, I, we get paid off a base, a base um, like an AUM base investment management fee sort of basis, which is, I think, pretty reasonably priced and relative to what we deliver in performance and, and the mandate. But even then, I'll be telling people, look, you know, I'm probably one of your least bad options. You know, I, I don't consider that we're the best. The best is that you go and educate yourself to be able to manage and, and navigate these sorts of dynamics yourself, but knowing that that's, yeah, not, but that's, not, that's not realistic. I mean, think of it if, if you're a, a doctor or a lawyer, a pilot, a bread maker, right, exactly. whatever, you've got... You're going to ask me to fly a plane and, and that's no, not going to end no. very well. Like, uh, and, and you're likely to do a whole lot worse. I mean, I know a lot of people who try to manage their own money and then turned around and gone, holy smokes, this is really hard and I've just lost 50% of my portfolio, please help. Yeah. And so, and so I tell people, we're probably, you know, one of the least bad options you got, but the only comfort I can give you is that, hey, I'm um, up to my eyeball. I'm in the same boat here. We eat what we cook. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's very hard for me to turn up to a family barbecue. Um, <laughs> Yeah, if I'm not doing what I said I'd do. And, yeah. and so I've created a portfolio management approach, which we talked about just there before, such that it's not too dependent on me being a rocket scientist and I can sleep well at night knowing that we'll be reasonably resilient, yet we'll create you know, some attractive returns. Yeah. But the real kicker to the whole strategy is not actually what we do in the portfolio. It's what it enables you to do outside of the portfolios in terms of, preserving purchasing power or at least retaining most of it when everyone else, you know, every seven to 10 years we'll, we'll have a cycle where, you know, conditions get tight, asset valuations get compressed again, you know, be a recession or whatever. Um, and if you've got cash when no one else does, well, you're going to pick up some assets at pretty attractive prices, you know, high quality assets. Yeah. Um, and that's half the, half the game. So it's the old storehouse principle. Um, from the book of Genesis in the good times you want to, you know, incrementally compound and increase your, your purchasing power and, and save a big chunk of your income. So when the bad times come, you've got purchasing power when others don't, you open up the storehouse and start buying, you know, say 
all those high quality assets that you've had your eye on mm-hmm. at a very good price um, and then repeat over 30 years we'll see a couple of cycles and it's a very conservative way to actually substantially build wealth and so we have a liquid portfolio solution and you know a capital preservation resiliency sort of bias to what we do um, where they should come out ahead without getting cut in half you know like you normally would as yeah. much and gives them some purchasing power and the liquidity they need when no one else has it or you know at least that's the theory anyway that's that's how we set up and no we're on the same page daniel i i i can't find anything really that i can disagree with you on um as much as i i, I tend to find common sense tends to speak for itself yeah. people trust what they understand and and that's you know the more we can move towards that sort of direction the the more robust we will be in this complex world <laughs> yeah well it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you daniel and um where can listeners find you um it's probably best to just jump on the website which is www.prerequisite.com.au fantastic well i appreciate your time and we'll definitely do this again if you're open to it yeah sure thanks very much for tuning in to receive more great subscriber only information go to capitalistexploits.at Thank you.